because right now what we know we need to do is increase flexibility and adaptability, but we also have to work on this skill of tolerating ambiguity. And as humans, we're just not that good at it, right? We want our answers. We want to know what are we going to do? When can we decide? And let's make a plan. And I think the longer you spend in a leadership position, the more used to you are to making a decision and creating a plan and taking action. And ambiguity then becomes even more difficult to tolerate. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious U is a production of CHELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CHELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash academics and select Centers of Excellence. Welcome to this episode of Ingenious You. I am Melissa Morris Olson, and I am your host, and I am delighted to have on our show today Dr. Christina Hallett. Dr. Hallett is a board-certified specialist in clinical psychology and a fellow of the American Academy of Clinical Psychology. She has been in private practice for more than 25 years. Uh, Christina, I don't think you're old enough to be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if only that was the case. (laughs) I'm reading this. I'm thinking this this cannot possibly be true. Um, But through her private practice, she provides psychotherapy, consultation, and supervision to medical and mental health professionals in addressing relationship and major life issues with a specialty in complex trauma and disassociative disorders. In addition to her private practice work in psychotherapy, Dr. Hallett, also provides executive coaching, which she defines, and I love this definition, as the fast track to leadership, confidence, and work-life synergy. Boy, don't we all need that today. Her specialty is assisting driven professionals and entrepreneurs to become stress smart by harnessing the positive power of stress to increase resilience, productivity, and well-being. She is the author of the international bestsellers, own best friend, eight steps to a life of purpose, passion, and ease, and most recently, be awesome. Vanish burnout, create motivation from the inside out. Christina, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have this conversation. 
great. You know, your books, <laughs> I love the titles of your books, most most uh, particularly the Be Awesome Vanish Burnout. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in recent days and weeks who are uh, describing their current state as feeling burned out. So um, so I will look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. But But let me start by saying you are one of the most passionate and creative individuals that I know. And, and so could you tell, tell your, uh, tell me, tell our listeners how you uh, got on your professional pathway? Well, I, I am happy to share that. And <laughs> I think it's only fair to say that from the age of three until the age of 20, I was going to be a pediatrician. So, <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> So literally, <laughs> but I can, but, but I can see yeah. that actually, that's what I, I wanted. I, I distinctly, one of my earliest memories is being given a first aid kit. My dad supervised all of the lifeguards in our town and they all got first aid kits. And I got one for a birthday present because my birthday is in July and I was so excited and I'd run around using, you know, we used Mercurochrome in those days and I'd bandage everyone up. And I was just convinced I wanted to be a pediatrician. And I went to Wellesley College and majored in biology. And then I took a psych course and I thought, oh, this is pretty interesting. So I added in a double major, so biology and psychology. And my psych professors were saying, you know, you really should go into psychology. I'm like, no, I'm going to med school. I literally took my MCATs, my medical college admission test. I did everything. And then at the last minute in an interview for medical school, someone said, why do you want to go? And I had this moment where <laughs> I kept speaking. I don't know what I said, but nobody had made funny faces. So it looked like I said something appropriate. But in my head, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to go to medical school. And in that moment, I made the decision and decided that I was going to go on and get my doctorate in psychology. So my path... <laughs> my lifetime path that everyone knew switch. And that was a pretty brave moment for me. And it's one of the times that I really recognize listening to my inner voice and, and paying attention. And I think that's one of the things we often don't do. So I got my doctorate at UMass in Amherst, and then I've worked in a whole variety of different settings from uh, children's mental health to adults with serious mental illness to the Connecticut prison system. I worked for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services and uh, continued my private practice all along and just began to explore different ways. And then, let's see, about six years ago, came to uh, Bay Path University as a full-time faculty. Mm, wow. You know, I, I am in awe of your ability at an early age to be able to recognize that voice within, which is something so many people uh, struggle with their entire lives. So how, how in the, how did you know, or where did the courage come from to, to recognize that this was not the path that you were to be on and, and, and then to pivot? Well, uh, as you did. I, I think that's such a good question. And I'm not sure I have a great answer for it because I continue to then live my life in many ways and not always listen to my inner voice. And there's stories I know um, that you're familiar with my first book, Own Best Friend. And there's a, a story in there about how I very famously did not listen to my inner voice and was impacted by other people's opinions. And so at the time that I made that decision to pivot, it just felt really clear. It's what I would think of as a, 
a very clear inner knowing and alignment. Like it, it's almost as if it was one of those aha moments when the light bulb mm-hmm. goes off. And I thought, I just feel compelled. I need to do this. And I'm mm-hmm. thrilled that I made that decision because things have worked out really well for me. Uh, but well, I think that we have to continue to work on this. So just because I did it once did not mean the next time that there was an inner voice to listen to, I necessarily paid attention. So I think of that trusting your own voice, being willing to hear it, and then even more having the courage to act on it, that like pretty much everything else is a skill that we have to continue to nurture and develop throughout our lifetime. Mm, Boy, well, thank heavens we did. Uh, However it happens, because I know you have helped hundreds, if not thousands of others over the course of your career. And uh, in in particular, I know that you work with many high achieving leaders from a variety of organizations and walks of life. I, I really do like the way you uh, describe your specialty, uh, assisting driven professionals and entrepreneurs. And so what have you learned from your executive coaching with these these individuals? Anything surprise you or anything that uh, listeners might be? Uh, interested in in knowing? I think about this and there's two things that immediately come to mind. And I wouldn't say that they're necessarily unique to my realization, but I think they are so important for everyone to really pay attention to. And the first is that we're all human. So every single one of us has periods of time throughout our life where we struggle with self-doubt, with questioning, with How do we go forward? How do we be the person we want to be? And that's as true in a senior leader as it is in an adolescent. It comes out in different ways, but that's, again, I think part of our our humanity is that that's that's there for all of us. The other thing, and this didn't surprise me, (laughs) I guess, uh, but one of the things that I've really had to wrap my head around is the fact that when I'm working with senior leaders, they are reluctant to give up working too much. Like that's, that's just the bottom line. You know, you sort of say, let's talk about, that's why I talk about work-life synergy because forget this whole balance, right? We're not going to say 50%, 50%. I'm saying, you know, how do you, how do you pull it all together and still do what you want to do? And I am a partially recovering workaholic. So I I feel like I, you know, I, with them. Yeah, exactly. Because I love and I'm energized by the things that I do. And I love to learn. And I think those are qualities that we see a lot in our executives and our leaders. And that's fabulous. So you never want to take that away. We want to help people use more of the strengths that they have. But the first answer is always, you know, someone gets to this point of burnout or struggling or or maybe they just want a different kind of promotion. So they're just coming at it from coaching. But as you begin to talk about what's your daily work life, what else do you do in your life and who are you? There is such resistance to altering work habits. And the immediate answer is I won't be able to get everything done completely flying in the face of science regarding productivity and stress. So what drives that? Based on, based on folks you've worked with and your, uh, your studies and experience uh, in psychology, where, and I'm, I'm, I'm imagining it must be different for, for 
everybody, but are there some common themes that you've seen in terms of what drives that inability to, to let go of the well, overwork? I, I think that we, <laughs> I think we raise people that way. I think that we are a culture, at least in the United States, that is founded on the badge of honor of overwork. And that's part of the conversation that people regularly have is like, oh, you know, God, it was such a tough day. It was a 14 hour day. And then the next person's like, yeah, I know me too. I barely got home. And <laughs> there are different professions where you can see that really easily. It doesn't necessarily come out that way. But for example, if you're talking to someone in the legal profession, you basically are not really working unless you're working 13 plus hours a day. That That's the general attitude. But we also see that even if we look at, let's say, an elementary level school teacher, their workday is not ending when school ends. Every single teacher that I've ever worked with is working into the night. It's not seen in the same way. It's not necessarily as obvious. And so I think that we have this culture that says you have to do more. And what we forget is that sometimes the way to do more is to simplify and in some ways to do less that we then get more mm -hmm. quality, which helps us with the quantity. Boy, that's wise, although it's a, it's a little bit counterintuitive. It, right, because it seems, okay, I just have to do more. I'll do 10 more emails. The truth is, for example, if you took a five minute break and just did a grounding or a breathing, you would then answer those 10 emails, went back to them, you'd answer them faster than if you didn't take the break. You are a faculty member, as you mentioned. Uh, you have been for six years, yep. right? Uh, six plus uh, on the graduate psychology faculty at Baypath. Does this apply in higher ed? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> Actually, uh, this, is a, <laughs> this is a brand new announcement, but someone at a, a different university elsewhere in the country just contacted me last weekend and asked if I would co-write with her a chapter for a book she's doing on burnout in higher education. Oh, okay. And my chapter is going to be on sort of the personality of those who are in higher education and higher education leadership. <laughs> and so oh. very much so. And again, at this most simplistic level, we can say that uh, for many universities or institutions that are using a tenure model, you can see that there's sort of an inborn competitiveness and need to produce. And of mm. course, that's not true in every institution. And that's from my perspective, that's a plus. But just that model, it, we also, I think, carry a framework of what it means to be in higher education. And you're already there to be of service. Your focus is on your students and nurturing your students' growth. And you've got to stay ahead of that curve. So you're literally you know, running while teaching all the time. And the tendency to overwork is uh, on behalf of something that's so very good, right? Because so, so many of us are very mission focused. We're, we're drawn to our institutions because the mission is so compelling. And so how could you possibly say no or turn... Exactly. Right. right? So that's because it's providing you meaning in your life. So this seems mm -hmm. like a really good thing that you're doing. And it's great until you suddenly hit the wall and can't keep going at the same pace. And that's part of this idea of how do we have work life synergy? Because if you're truly committed to the mission, you want to keep doing it. You don't want to have go, 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 stop within a long period of recovery. 
right? That's actually going to feel worse than by five miles an hour, let's say, reducing the pace. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the current pandemic, higher education was in a distressed state. Colleges and universities are closing their doors or merging at an ever-increasing rate, and leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder that many experts have called for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input, and then we designed the program with their input in mind. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education, the HELOS program may be the program for you. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu slash academics slash graduate programs. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I mean, obviously, higher ed was already undergoing change and uh, disruption before the pandemic, but the pandemic has certainly accelerated the pace of change and the feeling of uncertainty and uh, questioning about what in the world are we in the midst of and what, what is the future going to look like? So for those in leadership roles in colleges and universities, the pressures and the stress are absolutely mm -hmm. enormous. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what guidance you might have uh, for anyone leading during these times or for your fellow faculty members who are just trying to um, figure out the new normal in terms of their teaching and learning and their work with students. Well, I want to mention something connected to what we were just saying that I think folds into this. So there is a whole study that was done by Yale and it talks about burnout and that there's, a, in fact, a larger component of people who are both burned out and engaged. So when we think of burnout, we typically think of someone who's disengaged and has pulled back at decreased productivity, things like that. But specifically in a situation where the person is living their mission, doing their work that feels like their vocation, that they're truly interested and committed to this, you can be both still engaged with what you want to do and experiencing burnout. Which brings me, I think, to your answer to this, because right now what we know we need to do is increase flexibility and adaptability, but we also have to work on this skill of tolerating ambiguity. And as humans, we're just not that good at it, right? We want our answers. We want to know what are we going to do? When can we decide? And let's make a plan. And I think the longer you spend in a leadership position, the more used to you are to making a decision and creating a plan and taking action. And ambiguity then becomes even more difficult to tolerate. So 
thinking about the typical academic mm-hmm. organization, typical higher ed college university, how easy do you think it is to institute a culture like what you're describing, which sounds really wonderful, actually. I mean, I think for most of us, the idea of working in a culture where we're encouraged mm-hmm. to fail, fail forward, yep. the saying, um, and really focus on our strengths and not get uh, penalized for the mistakes that we make. Um, but, but based on what you know, about academic organizations, where, where are the pitfalls or what, what is it that makes it uh, challenging for leaders to institute that kind you know, of culture? I think there's lots of different ways we can look at this, but so we have the leadership of the institution who's also then responsible to a board and there's real world financial implications of whatever decision-making is made. And so I fully believe that what you have to do is you have to have all of your senior leadership on board with a new way of being. And I think that typically in any given organization, there are some who are willing to say, yes, let's do this, and others for whom that feels really uncomfortable or threatening. And when you don't have full commitment from the top down, I don't believe you get full commitment and investment from the bottom up. You know, the other thing I would say, Melissa, is that part of this culture is helping people understand that there are realities to things, right? That sometimes decisions are made that you don't agree with or you don't, you're not going to have all of the information about, depending on if you're a faculty member, you're not going to know all the ins and outs of every decision that's made. And that's fine. If we're in a culture that has as much transparency as it can, but is willing to acknowledge when it's not, and to support people in questioning and still holding the limits of what we can and can't share, I think that makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. So back to balance. Yeah. So let me go back. Let me go back to, um, I want to, I have Mm -hmm. one more question about burnout and I think there are many folks that are burned out that maybe mm-hmm. don't know that they're burned out. So how would you know? Do you, do you have like a 10-point <laughs> checklist that you go through to help people identify if they're in the midst of burnout and needing to do something? There's, you could literally go almost anywhere. Like you could do a Google search and immediately get thousands and thousands and thousands of articles and lists that are going to give it to you. But the short version is if you break burnout down, you're looking at seeing an impact physically, cognitively, and emotionally. So what you tend to see is someone who's having more physical ailments, more headaches, more stomach aches. They're getting colds more often. They're just feeling fatigued and run down. What you see from a mental perspective is they just don't seem to be able to to power through the way they did before. They feel that perhaps they make mistakes, and I'm talking minor ones like typos or things like that that they don't usually do, but somehow their efficiency has been decreased or they feel foggy at times. And then emotionally, what you see is someone who tends to be more irritable or more withdrawn, uh, less invested or happy about what they do. So it's general changes from where someone's at, but often the person themselves doesn't know. And I know even for myself that when I, I've known I'm approaching that place, when I get irritated about something that doesn't matter in the least, uh, 
So it's something like if I walk into my house and I see that there's a few things on a table that haven't been put away and I say, oh, why are these still here? You know, and then my husband looks at me and he's like, sorry, honey, they're yours. You know, and I'm like, ooh, that's a big sign. <laughs> like, what does it matter if they're there or not? Right. Yeah. So it's that kind of what I call irritability or reactivity. Those are all really big warning signs. You know, if if any of us pause for a moment, just say 10 to 15 minutes and think, how do I usually spend my time? You know, what what portion is work? What portion is things that renew and recharge me? How much connection do I have? What's my overall mood? If we take a 10 to 15 minutes to self-reflect, we can key into some of the really early signs that you're heading down that pathway, which is far more effective. It is much harder to get to the place of actual burnout and to then recover. But if you start noticing, oh, wow, you know, things are are not balanced sufficiently. And like I said, it's, it's never 50-50. But I do think of that image of a seesaw. And when it's only in one direction, <laughs> at some point, it's going to be very jarring when it fully moves in the other direction. So instead, I like to imagine that sweet spot. If you think back to when you were a child of sitting on a sweet, on a what did I just call it? A seesaw. I'm like, not a swing set, a seesaw. If you think back, I got caught up in the memory. Think <laughs> back to that moment where you and a friend sat on a seesaw and it just gently moved back and forth. That's the image and the feeling that I like people to keep in mind of where they want to be. And sometimes there's a big up and down, but you're also really enjoying that place in the middle, even though you're continually in movement. Mm, I love that image. That's, that's very, very helpful. <clears throat> so let me ask you, Christina, how do you stay positive and inspired so, on a day-to-day -day basis? Truthfully, I'm a pretty happy person in general, which is a great thing. And I love to laugh. And I particularly love to laugh at myself and the goofy things that I do. So that's a huge help. Um, but I do a lot of work to stay focused on the present to really pay attention to how I'm feeling, to notice what is going on around me. So when I'm driving between places every day, I really look around and pay attention to the environment and find things that I can appreciate, enjoy, or feel gratitude for. I definitely spend time in nature whenever I can. I, I told you off air, we have one, two, three, four, five seven different animals in my house, right? So um, there's barely room for my husband because, you know, three dogs, two cats, two birds. Um, who, the who husband. Came first, the husband or the animal? The joke was that oh, every okay. time a child left the house, I got a dog. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at some point I'm like, well, yeah, whatever, I, I'm just going to embrace it. Um, we have the ability to do that. But I also really work to take moments where I rest. And this can be, I, you know, I talk a lot about breathing, but I practice this. You know, if I'm going and I'm, I know because of what I do and what I teach, I know when I'm beginning to feel agitated internally. And that is a major cue for me. And I stop and take a couple slow breaths. And then I also give myself the opportunity to say, do I want to be 
upset or agitated about this. And truthfully, sometimes I do. Like we get to have feelings. So sometimes I can say, no, I, I want to be frustrated or angry or sad or whatever. And other times I'm like, mm, no, that, that's not going to help me right now. Well, Christina, this has been such an inspiring conversation. I want to end by giving you a chance to share anything about yourself or the work that you're doing Thank with you. our listeners. I love this conversation. You know, I could literally go on forever. So <laughs> uh, what I will say is you can find uh, links to just about everything that I do on my website, which is drchristinahallett.com. So that's D-R-K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A. H-A-L-L-E-T-T dot com. And I also have uh, another book that, depending on the work you do, could be interesting. It's called The Trauma Treatment Toolbox for Teens, which is really hard to say quickly. Uh, and I co-authored this in the past year mm -hmm. with a friend of mine who's a child psychologist. It's 144 different worksheets. And it all of the things that we've been talking about, these there are worksheets and examples on how to do that. So it's a great resource for parents, right? It doesn't necessarily specifically have to be for other mental health practitioners. It's also a good res resource for parents. And truthfully, I've used some of the exercises with some of my adult clients. So if there are things that um, that have been stuck points in terms of identifying emotions or feeling more positive about oneself, that's certainly out there. And then the only other thing I'd mention is I too have a podcast, which is uh, Be Awesome, Celebrating Mental Health and Wellness. And it is a great podcast. So I would encourage all of our listeners to tune in and listen to your, your podcast as well for your, for your daily dose of inspiration and positive thinking and resiliency. So Christina, thank you again for being being my guest today. This has been a wonderful conversation. I too could, uh, we could make this a very, uh, a day long conversation, but you've given us so many good. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really about. appreciate it. Wilson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation. The pandemic has turned everything on its head virtually overnight for colleges and universities. Beginning in early March and with several weeks still to go in the spring semester, nearly all institutions shut down, leaving their students with few options. Activities were disrupted, faculty quickly moved their courses online, and there is still uncertainty about how institutions will resume their campus operations come fall. I'm pleased to be joined for this episode by a panel of currently enrolled college students. While we've heard a great deal about the administrative and the faculty perspective, the student experience has been relatively missing from the conversation, and especially for institutions that consider themselves to be student-focused, and frankly, who doesn't, it's important to hear from our students about how they have been impacted, what worked and what didn't work for them, and what their hopes and their fears are as they contemplate returning to their campuses in the fall. Subscribe now to be sure you don't miss out on this lively discussion. For now, thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.